One announcement clarification and one new announcement. This morning on the, uh, we announced about the uh, Bible camp this summer. North Stonington Bible Church every year has a, you know, summer camp for one week for, I think, uh, middle school kids and another week for teens. And every year I find out about that the week before they have it. This year I remembered all the way in, in March. So I called up Larry Chapel yesterday or a couple of days ago, and we're going to work things out so that we can get some of our kids involved and maybe some adults too. And the uh, yeah, the birds are back, Ken. Okay, get the shotguns out. And sparrows in the rafters again. Okay, so we're going to have summer camp. Might as well have it here. It sounds like a camp cabin. Uh, so that'll be the week that Jim mentioned earlier. And if you are an adult and you would like to be involved, or if you're in middle school or teen, you want to get involved, it'd be great. I'm a tremendous advocate of Christian camping, having come up, been involved in almost every element of Christian camping possible uh, when I was younger. So I would encourage you on that. Furthermore, there will be two teen camp—I mean, two camps—in uh, operated by Jim Myers Ministry in Kiev. One the first week of July for uh, younger kids, and one the last week of July for teens. And I think we've got uh, at least two or three people, maybe more, interested in that. And since this is going to be out on the internet. Uh, this isn't limited to just people who go to Preston City Bible Church, but I know I've had inquiries from people around the country, and not just for teenagers or college kids. We want to have a minimum age of about 17, but this is a great thing if you're an adult and you want to go over there on a short-term missions trip and be involved. Uh, that would be a great thing for you, and I would strongly encourage it. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that our, we've already, well, we've already done that. We had the Lord's table, so you, you all should still be in fellowship, even if you did lose an hour of sleep last night. So let's open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to uh, be, have our minds focused, our emotions stabilized, our lives uh, dependent upon your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, that we would be challenged by them, that we would not take this as simply an exercise in, in habit, something we do on a regular basis, but that we might realize how vital, how important, how significant your word is and how refreshing it is to study your word each and every week. Father, we pray that you would, under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, help us to see how these vital truths apply to our own lives and our own thinking. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus is turning into big business. Have you noticed that in the last few weeks? We started this series back in the end of November on who is Jesus, and now Fox News has stolen my title. Tonight at 9 o'clock, Fox News is doing a special on who is Jesus, and at 8 o'clock, CNN is doing a special on who was Jesus. Now, what does that tell you? Exegete the titles. The folks at CNN think he died and he's in the grave. The folks at Fox News know he's at the right hand of God the Father. He's a resurrected Lord. And that just comes through in the title. And all this week, I mean, have you ever seen so many 
different things on the History Channel on A&E. They ran a mini-series, Jesus of Nazareth, the mini-series. And, of course, they last night, the segment that ran from 10 to midnight, which, of course, due to switching to daylight savings time, was way past my bedtime, uh, was when they were going to do the resurrection. That wasn't going to come till almost midnight, uh, and I wasn't going to stay up because that would have been 1 in the morning. I wasn't going to stay up until midnight to find out how they handled the resurrection. But if any of you watch it, or if it's rerun, let me know how they handle the resurrection. Typically, Hollywood has sort of an ethereal, non-physical, non-bodily resurrection of Christ, where it is just sort of, you hear his disembodied voice in the background, or, you know, some glow, uh, glowing light somewhere, or whatever, but you don't usually see the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. They just don't know how to handle that, because, of course, their presupposition is that he's not God, he is just a man. And that is why we're taking the time to go through the series that we're in on who is Jesus to help us understand what the Bible teaches about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we went through our study and we began uh, looking at the Old Testament, which taught that the Messiah would come and he would be God. And then we saw that he also taught that the Messiah would be a man. And these streams of thought came together in the virgin birth. And so the virgin birth is the first and most crucial element of the doctrine of who Jesus Christ is, that he's born of a virgin because it is the virgin birth that is the means by which the eternal second person of the Trinity takes on humanity and enters into human history. And that is crucial. If you don't have the virgin birth, you don't have a divine Messiah. And Jesus has to be God for a number of reasons. It becomes clear from the scripture that man can't die for man. That uh, the only way man can be redeemed is if God is the redeemer. But God can't redeem man because it has to be a human being that dies as a substitute for man. So God takes on humanity himself. God becomes a human being, takes on or adds humanity to himself in order to be able to pay uh, the penalty for sin on the cross. And this addition of a human nature to the divine nature is what is called the hypostatic union. And we started our study on the hypostatic union last week, and we're locating this in a particular passage, and that is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And this morning I just want to look at and remind us of 5 through 9, we will get into the exegesis of this passage, but before we do, I, we need to come to a greater understanding of our definition of hypostatic union. Philippians 2.5, Jesus says to the Philippians, have this mentality, not just attitude, it is a mentality, it is a mindset, have this mentality in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, or have this thinking in yourself. The Christian life is a life of thought. It is not a life of emotion. It is not a life of sentimentality. It's not like the liberals portray it, learning how to love. See, they don't have any content or meaning to this concept of love. Jesus, of course, emphasizes the fact that that in the church age, the sign of a growing, maturing believer is that we love one another as he loved us. 
But that is not something that he just just hangs out there for anyone to come along and define love the way they they, they want to. It is uh, de- dependent upon thought, thought that is informed by the revelation of Scripture. Have this mentality in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Paul is, is, jumps from talking about a very practical subject, how to have unity and peace in, in, in the midst of a local congregation when people have personality conflicts or other conflicts, and then he focuses on the key Virtue, the underlying virtue for the Christian life, which is humility. Have this mentality in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, and that phrase, as we'll see, emphasizes the essence of God, based on the Greek noun morphe, the morphe, uh, the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. So right there we see that Jesus is is uh, stated to be equal to God in his pre-incarnate state. He's equal to God. Then in verse 7, but he emptied himself. There's our verb, kenao, which is what develops into what's called the kenosis problem. And we'll get to that probably next Sunday. But emptied himself, taking the form morphe, essence of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men that is in the physical appearance of men being found in appearances of man verse 8 he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross now where we're going with this as i do sometimes rather than starting in verse 5 and working our way down through verse 8 we're going to start at verse 8 which is the goal Understanding where you're headed is going to make some of what may appear to some of you to be abstract theologizing a little more significant. See, here Paul's dealing with such a relevant problem, such a such an issue that everybody faces, is how do you deal with other believers when you get at cross purposes with someone else? How do you have uh how do you get along with other people? How do you have genuine humility? And so the illustration comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's based upon the fact that the second person of the Trinity takes on humanity and goes to the cross, humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is then the model. And we, I could probably teach for the next five years just on that last phrase, and we would barely exhaust its implications for how we are to live and handle situations in life. So we're going to start at the end, and then we're going to work backwards to understand how and why Paul goes there. And what I pointed out last time was this phrase, by becoming obedient. This is the Greek verb, genomai which indicates process. He becomes obedient. It is a process of, of growth. So the act of uh, uh, the humility that he exhibits is worked out in this process of obedience and growth, which then becomes the model or the pattern for the Christian way of life. Now, how he humbles himself is what is described in verse 6 and 7. 
although he existed in the form of God, that's the essence of God, did not, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, here we see that, that Jesus is equal with God, but he empties himself, which is then defined as taking on the form, the essence, morphe of a bondservant. So he's got the morphe of God and the morphe of a bondservant. Those are those two natures that are joined together in the one person of Jesus Christ and being made in the likeness of men. And this is a noun that indicates the, the physical makeup. He's got true humanity and a, and a genuine human physical body. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this passage while it is one of the most precise passages in Scripture to deal with the person of Jesus Christ, it still leaves us hanging in terms of answering some basic questions about, well, how does this take place? How do you have this union of deity and and humanity? And it took the early church approximately 350 years to be able to articulate this in precise language. See, it's not that what they articulated in the creeds is extra-biblical. It reflects exactly what's in the, in the Bible. They're taking the data that's in the Bible, and they're working through a way to, to articulate it to help us understand it in a more precise way. And the conclusion to this is this definition we worked through last time called uh, this definition on the hypostatic union. And it is out of those discussions and out of that thought and out of those writings and the debates that took place between roughly 100, uh, A.D. 100 and A.D. 450 that you get this terminology using the Greek word hypostasis, which refers to the substantial nature, essence, actual being, or reality. And so it's talking about the fact that in Jesus Christ there's a union of two natures, a truly divine nature, undiminished deity, and a truly human nature. He is all that God is, and he is all that man is. Now, how do you put that together? We started with the definition so you know where we're going. The hypostatic union describes the union of two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. Now, that's where we start having trouble conceptually. How do you have two natures in one person? We have to explain that. That's the next sentence. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes. That means that the the omniscience doesn't bleed over into the mentality of the humanity, and the finite thought of, of his humanity doesn't in some, some way diminish his omniscience. So there's no loss or transfer of properties or attributes. The union being personal and eternal, that means that it's one person, and it is eternal. He will always be, from now throughout all eternity, the God-man. So we say that Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. Now, that last sentence is one that we can teach in prep school. 
And for many of us, when we talk about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hypostatic union, that is how we understand it. Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. And what you have is a good first-grade primary understanding of the hypostatic union. But see, we're not going to get very far if we limit ourselves to just very basic primary understanding of doctrine. We have to press these things on out, and we have to come to understand just exactly what that means and what the implications are. And we uh, began to work through that last time. Now, today what I want to do is begin to look at the ramifications of this definition. What are the ramifications? First of all, there are two natures in Christ. First ramification we've got. Six ramifications. First of all, there are two natures in Christ. This means there are two distinct essences, two distinct substances. One is human and one is divine. The, the word nature in and of itself is an awkward term to define. This is what they were struggling with, and part of the problem that we run into is moving from Greek into English. Somewhere in the middle there, we jump through Latin. And that was a problem in the early church because the Greek here is more precise than the Latin. And in, in the Latin, you had uh, one word, uh, substantia, which is where we get our word substance, which was used to uh, translate two diff- different words in, in Greek, hypostasis and ousia. Hypostasis has to do with hypostatic or nature, and ousia has to do with being. So you got two Greek words that are being funneled into one Latin word. Now you see there's a problem. Okay, so this is why in the in the Western Church, remember we're not dealing with the Roman Catholic Church. We're still in the Roman Empire. You've got the Eastern Empire, which primarily speaks Greek, and the Western Empire, which primarily speaks Latin. But you're having to take these concepts that are being hammered out in Greek, and then you're translating them into Latin, and you get some confusion. Now we're 2,000 years later and you've got to go through English and you get even more confusion. And so there's a lot of debate over these concepts of nature and substance. And what we're saying by saying that it's a union of two natures is that in, in, in the person of Jesus Christ, you have the essence of deity. He's, he's sovereign. He's perfect justice. He's absolute righteousness. He, he's undiminished love. He's eternal life. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He's omnipresent, he's immutable, and he is absolute truth. All of that in a, in, an, in a nature that is impenetrable. It's not going to be pierced by humanity. It's not going to leak out anything. Okay, it's on, it's, and it's in the person. You have this one essence. On the other side, you have the, the essence or nature of humanity, a human, human soul, everything that makes a human being a human being. He is a, a creature. He is finite. He has mentality. He has self-consciousness. He has volition. He has a conscience. He doesn't have a sin nature. He has all the elements that make up of a human soul. He has a human spirit. He has everything that makes a human being a human being, including a human body. And we've gone through the study on the humanity of Jesus. So what you have is is two natures, two distinct uh, 
natures that are present in the one person, Jesus Christ. And that's our second point, that these two natures are united in the person of Christ. They are in one person. See, the problem that you've got is you're thinking in terms of the Latin word persona, which is where we get our English word person, and you have you can't distinguish between person and essence because way most of us think about it, they're the same, almost identical. But what we have is two natures that are united in the person of Jesus Christ, but they remain distinct, and this means that they are never mingled. You don't, if you mingled them, this was one of the errors that you get in the early church is that if they mingled, then they would become a, a, another something. They wouldn't be pure deity and undiminished deity and true humanity anymore. They're never confounded. They are not uh, part deity and part humanity. They are two complete natures joined together in one person so that he is the God-man. We, sometimes this is referred to as the theanthropic man, the joining of God and man. Third, there's no transfer of the attributes of one nature to the other nature. They remain distinct. Each set of attributes must remain compatible to the nature to which it corresponds, and these attributes are not absorbed into the other nature. So there are certain things which are true of the divine nature of the Son, such as his omniscience, omnipresence, his righteousness, his justice, and they are true of his deity, but they're not true of his humanity. They don't bleed over to the humanity. So there's no way that a human nature can absorb the attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, or omnipotence. In his human nature, he has limited knowledge. He is spatially limited. He is finite. And God can never be limited in those areas. You can't limit deity in terms of knowledge. You can't limit deity in terms of space. So they remain distinct. There's no transfer or leakage of one of any of the attributes from one nature into another. Fourth, this union is a personal union. That means this isn't an it. It's a personal. It's a person. It is person-centered, so there's one person there. Now, we'll unpack this in just a minute because this is where it starts breaking down for a lot of people. It's just one person. He has two natures, but he's not. he doesn't have multiple personality syndrome or dual personality syndrome. See, that's how some people conceive of it. And, and this is where human language breaks down because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, he did this out of his deity, and he did this out of his humanity. And that's like, okay, Jesus is sitting there and he's saying, okay, which am I, which am I today? Am I the, the, the divine side or am I the human side? Well, once again, we're confusing deity and, I mean, we're confusing person and nature. It's a personal union, so there's one person. He is not uh, deity possessing humanity any more than he is humanity that's indwelt by deity. He is one person in whom this union has taken place. Fifth point, there's only one person. 
There is one I. When Jesus is thinking, he says, I did it. Jesus never says, I'm, my, my humanity is doing this. He doesn't say, my deity is doing this. Now, there are certain things that, Je- that we will see that Jesus does, that some things show that he's God, other things show that he's fully man. But one person is doing it. One person is involved. It's not, uh, there's, there's not an I and a you inside uh, the head of Jesus Christ. There's only one person. And then the sixth ramification is that this union is eternal. It's permanent. It will go on throughout all of eternity. Now, when we try to understand some of these various various aspects, our finite minds start to break things down. So I want to try to clarify through seven different principles. I want to bring some clarification into uh, some of the passages and some of the ways that we express this. So this has to do with clarification of various passages. First of all, there are some passages that speak about the whole person who has both natures. He is spoken of as a redeemer. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. Now, some of that has to do with his human side, but it's one person who is the redeemer, the one person, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for our sins. But it was his humanity that bore the punishment on in our place because Humanity had to be a substitute for humanity. Deity could not substitute for for humanity, but deity is on the cross. He doesn't just vacate for a while. Furthermore, some passages contain statements that are true only of one person. Uh, For example, when uh, Jesus is changing the water into wine, that is a that is his deity. He is demonstrating that he's the creator. When in Mark four we looked at Wednesday night in relationship to the flood and Jesus' power over the storm out on the Sea of Galilee, he is demonstrating that he is God, that he has power over creation. And that is coming, of course, from his uh from his deity, but it is the one person who does that. In John eight 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before uh, Abraham was, I am. Who's the I there? Well, that's clearly speaking only of his deity. His humanity didn't come into existence until the virgin, virgin birth. So Jesus in his deity is eternal, but he says, I, the person, I am. So here you have... It's clearly true of one, but of the deity, but the whole person is the subject. On the other hand, you have other passages that are true only of his humanity, but the whole person is the subject. When he was on the cross in John 19:28, he said, I thirst. See, his physical humanity is thirsty, but deity doesn't thirst. But it's true of the one person. His, that is evidence of his humanity, but his whole person is thirsty. Furthermore, we can say that as a person, he can be described uh, according to his divine nature, but 
what we're talking about relates to the human nature. For example, in Revelation 1, 12 through 18, we're told that Christ is in the glory and his deity is evidence. But when it talks about the fact that he is dead and risen again, that can only be true of his humanity. So in uh, Revelation 1, 12 through 18, in that passage, we see Christ in his glory and in his deity. The glory is the evidence of his deity, but the statement in in that passage that he was dead can't be true of his deity because deity doesn't die. So it is a picture of his uh, deity, but there's something attributed to it that is true only of his humanity. So there are a number of ways in which we have to clarify our thought on this. It's one person. Whatever we say of him, it's one person who is doing it. And, but what is done or what is said about him may be attributed to either of the natures or it may evidence either of the natures. But it's not some sort of multiple personality. So what are the consequences then of the hypostatic union? First of all, the commun- we, we talk about the fact that there's a communion of attributes. There is a communion of attributes. A communion of attributes means a sharing of attributes. Okay? What do we mean by a communion or a sharing of attributes? First of all, it doesn't mean that one nature is participating in the attributes of the other. It means that one person partakes of both sets of attributes. There's the one person who is sharing in the attributes of both natures. Now, what we, I, I know you're going there already, and I've had some, some questions uh, from e- e- email about some things. What we need to do is realize that Jesus Christ and his deity is omniscient. But in his humanity, as we'll see, he doesn't know certain things. How does that happen? The best way I can come to explain that now is that in his deity, Jesus has decided during the incarnation, he is going to limit his access to his divine attributes. It doesn't mean they're not there. They're veiled. You don't see the glory. But he's limiting access so that in his deity, he clearly knows everything. He's omniscient. But in his humanity, he's not going to access it. So he's going to ask questions. For example, when he shows up, uh, when Lazarus is dead, he says, where is he? You know, if he had accessed his omniscience, he would have known. In John 1, I think it's around verse 58, when, he, he, when, when Nathaniel comes to him, he says, Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Well, clearly he accessed his deity at that particular point. So he limits access uh, to his deity. We look at this first consequence, that there's a communion of the attributes. They share. It's the one person, though, who's determining when he's going to access his deity and when he's operating on his humanity. Second thing we can say about the sharing of the attributes is that what is true of either nature is true of the one person. So when his huma- when he thirsts, which indicates he's human, the whole person thirsts. That's the sharing of these attributes. Another example, Jesus is both mortal and he's immortal. In his humanity, he's mortal, but in his deity, he is immortal. So he's also finite in his humanity, but he's infinite in his deity. I mean, how do you join the infinite to the finite? 
There's a sharing of these attributes. They are both true of the one person. This then becomes a basis for how we can clearly interpret Scripture where passages talk about things that relate to one nature or the other nature but are applied to the whole person. Okay, a second consequence of the hypostatic union concerns the acts of Christ. Here I want to mention four things. All the acts, first of all, all the acts are the acts of one person. They are not the acts of his humanity. They're not the acts of his deity. They're the acts of the one person of Jesus Christ. Point number two, under this point, some acts are purely divine. Some acts are purely divine, such as creation, preservation, calming the seas. Others are purely human. This is the third point. Some acts are purely human, such as eating, drinking, and sleeping. Some acts involve both natures. For example, in redemption. In redemption, only God could redeem mankind, but only a man could pay the price. So in redemption, both the deity and the humanity participate. This is why there had to be a divine uh, Savior. The third consequence of the Hypostatic union is that the man, Jesus Christ, is the object of worship. Normally it would be a sin to worship a creature, a man, but we worship the man, Christ Jesus, because he's also fully God. So a third consequence of the hypostatic union is that we worship the man, Christ Jesus. A fourth consequence is that Christ can sympathize with his people. He can understand what we're going through because he went through the same kinds of tests, not the same identical tests necessarily, but the same category of testing. He was tempted or tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. So he is able to go through all of those circumstances in life and he is able to handle them without sin. He's able to handle them by relying upon God the Holy Spirit and claiming promises and applying the principles of Scripture. And that gives us a, a standard for living the Christian life. Fifth consequence of the hypostatic union is the eternal priesthood of Christ. This involves both his humanity and his deity. As to his humanity, he is a human priest and he's sympathetic or he he can identify with us. As to his deity, he has an everlasting priesthood, and the Father will hear him. The sixth consequence of the hypostatic union is the absence of a sin nature. This is one of the diff- most difficult things for us to handle because the sin nature isn't germane to humanity. That's one reason you're going to look different I think you're going to look different, and I'm going to look different in terms of our personality when we get to heaven. Think about how much of your personality is shaped by your sin nature. Now, don't think about it now. Wait till you get someplace else. Think about how, how much your spouse's personality is shaped by their sin nature. No, don't think about that too much. But we're going to know each other when we get to heaven, but think about that. In the process of spiritual maturity, the factor of the sin nature becomes less and less a factor in, in terms of our personality. But 
we don't think of humanity in terms of how it was originally created because our experience with humanity is experience with fallen, corrupt, sinful humanity. So when we talk about Jesus being true humanity, he is, as Adam was created without a sin nature, true humanity. And the final consequence, the seventh consequence, is that today it is the God-man at the right hand of God the Father. It is the God-man who ascended. There is a human being who has been elevated above the angels, elevated in, in authority over the angels. In his deity, he always was in authority over the angels. But now in his humanity, he is elevated over the angels. So there is a man at the right hand of God the Father. There is a man who controls the universe and who sits at the helm of the universe. Now these are the implications of the hypostatic union. Now how do we come to under, have we come to understand the hypostatic union? I think it's very interesting, illuminating to understand how this doctrine was formulated historically. Now most of you've heard me teach on this here and there and we'll go through it again eventually. You'll get it down. But one of the reasons I like to do this is that every time I do this, somebody realizes they're a heretic. And I was had lunch this last week with a uh, friend of mine I went through seminary with who's a chaplain over at Newport. And we were talking about this. And he made the comment, which I've made many times, is that most people sitting in the pew are functional heretics. Now, that's not true here because you get an education But most Christians are functional heretics because they're never taught to think very accurately. Pastors are too afraid to teach people in too much precision because most people don't want to think. They want to come to church and emote. They want to come to church and feel good. They want to come to church and have fellowship. They want to come to church and be comforted. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not why you come to church. You come to church in order to learn the Word of God so you can think about creation as God has defined it. That's reality. You want to live and operate within God's creation, dealing with all the facets of life in God's creation according to uh, the way God created it and according to uh, what God, uh, God's directions for living uh, within the cosmic system. So we have to learn how to think. And one of the most important things is that we can think accurately about our Savior. I mean, people run around all the time in evangelical churches singing, Oh, how I love Jesus, but you can't love someone you don't know. And if you haven't thought profoundly and deeply about the hypostatic union, then you don't know Jesus very well. See, we have to understand who our Savior is to love him. Now, we can appreciate salvation, and we're grateful for that, And we get all emotive over that sometimes, and that's okay to a certain degree, but that's not going to carry you very far. We have to get beyond a kindergarten, nursery school comprehension of who Jesus is in order to really have an impact on our thinking and on every other area of life. And this is one of the things that profoundly shaped Western culture. Western culture is what it is. I dare say that our Constitution in this country is what it is derivatively because of a precise understanding of the hypostatic union. Understanding the hypostatic union, understanding who Jesus is in the Trinity, 
is also vital to understanding the dynamics of the role relationships within a marriage. I mean, this is practical stuff. We've gone over this. When we went through 1 Corinthians 11.3 a while back, that was, the, I think, the last time we began to, uh, or we took some time to touch on this, where Paul says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So you have to understand the dynamics within the Trinity to be able to understand that, and Paul uses that as the framework for being able to understand the authority structure within a marriage so it doesn't become tyrannical on the one hand, where the husband or the wife is is lording it over the other one, or anarchic, where you just have two people who live under the same house and they're going in 50 different directions, and there's no unity in the home. All of that has to do with application. Now, as I stated in the introduction this morning, it took approximately 350 years for the early church to work through the precise way to, to state what was taught in the Scriptures. They're not inventing. See, this is the charge when, a few weeks ago when I went through the Da Vinci Code uh, critique. I noted that that this is the charge today is that, well, it was these councils just invented this material. No, that's not true. The raw data is in the Scripture. And up through the, this, the period of time in the early church, they believed in the deity of Christ. They believed in the humanity of Christ. But they didn't have precise verbiage for how they were united in one person. And so... Some of the most precise writing ever done was during that period of time on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, modern man tends to ignore it. The critic tends to ignore, ignore that because they were just operating on myth or, or legend or what they wanted Jesus to be, and that's part of chronological arrogance. Once we hit the period in history known as the Enlightenment in the 16th century, we figured anything that was written before that was just in, so influenced by religious superstition that it then it wasn't worth reading or studying or taking uh, seriously. And unfortunately, they, have, uh, they, they don't do justice to the writings in the early church. So we, have, we, we want to face the questions that they faced in the early part of the church. They asked two questions, or they were answering two questions. First is, what was Jesus before he came? What was Jesus before he came? And the second is, what was Jesus when he came? Now, this morning, we're not going to get to the second one. We're going to spend most of our time today on the first one, and next week we'll come back and we'll spend most of our time on the second one. What was Jesus before he came? In this first one, they came to the conclusion that Christ must be, a, must be distinct from the Father. That's the principle. Christ must be distinct from the Father. In the second, in the answering the second question, they came to understand that Christ is not subordinate in his essence, but he is uh, subordinate in his role or his function. So let's look at the first, the first one. What was Jesus before he came? Now, the first answer that they came up with historically was what is called modalism. And I think this is probably how most people think, in a very naive sense, uh, of the Trinity. 
modalism. And in modalism, what they learned in dealing with modalism was that the sun is, uh, or the claim of modalism was that the sun is not distinct from the father. That was the claim of modalism. This is how it would look if you diagrammed it out. You have God. God appears in history as the father. Then later on, God appears in history as the son. Then, after Pentecost, God appears in history as the Holy Spirit. And they look at the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as just sort of different manifestations of God. For a while, he puts on the Father mask. He takes that off, he puts on the Son mask. And then he takes that off and he puts on the Holy Spirit mask. But what the problem with this is that the Son isn't distinct from the Father. They're really the same person and the same essence. The Holy Spirit isn't distinct from the Father or the Son. They're the same person, they're the same essence. So in modalism, they were saying that God is one in essence and one in person. He just manifests himself in different ways. And so one of the ways that the problems that you have in this is that the problem with Latin terminology. I remember sitting in an undergraduate class at a Catholic university in Houston listening to a liberal Protestant teacher try to explain the Trinity and biting my tongue. See, that's what you have to do sometimes. You just sit there and listen, bite your tongue. And, and afterwards, I went and talked to him a little bit. But, but his basic claim was the Latin word was persona, which is like a mask. And he basically he taught pure modalism in the classroom as a definition of the Trinity. That that's what they mean by three by by one person. You just have persona, and and he ended up because he was going with all the Latin terminology, which was problematical. He denied the Greek terminology, which is where how all of this was developed in the early church. So the first attempt to solve the problem was called modalism. Actually, it's called modalistic monarchianism. And the reason they use the term monarchianism is because you just have one God who's the monarch. He is just, it's just one God. It is a, it is both, there are two forms of monarchianism and they're both basically Unitarianism. That there's only one God. He's only one person. There's only one essence. Now remember that the definition of the Trinity is that there is three persons and one essence. So if you only have one person, then who is God associating with or loving in eternity past if there's only one person? Go back three billion years into eternity past. If you say God is love, who's he loving? He's not loving anybody. Because if there's only one person, if you have a solitary monotheist like you do with Jehovah's Witness or with Unitarians or with Muslims, if you only have one God out there, then he can't be loved. If he is love, he's a dependent God, and he's out there three billion years ago wringing his hands, well, I don't have anybody to love. Because there's no one there for him to love. So he has to create something so that he can love something. That makes him dependent. So right now you've got a God who's got some real problems. Now, if he isn't love, you have an even greater problem. Because now he's not a social God. And by social, I mean capable of relationship. Because if there's, if God's eternal and He's not love, then there's no basis for a society. 
And by society, I'm not talking about having a party or having a, a high society. I'm talking about the fact that in eternity past, according to the Trinity, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there are there is an eternal relationship going on of communication and involvement and knowledge and care between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which then makes all of human society, whether you're talking about marriage, political society, civil society, uh, personal relationships, everything then becomes modeled by and, and becomes a, a basis for this eternal society in the Trinity. So you, you start having a real problem when you have, for a lot of reasons, when you have just a basic uh, modalistic view of God. And so in the early church, they realized that Jesus Christ had to be a distinct person from the Trinity. He couldn't be just this lone, I mean, God couldn't be just this lone, solitary uh, being out there. One of the early proponents of this view is a man named Sibelius. If you don't get anything out of this, you'll learn some, learn some names and a little bit about history. And I always think this is important because the first time I sat down, when I was 22 years old, and I sat down to read Schaeffer's Systematic Theology, and he started talking about Sibelianism, I went, who is Sibelian? What is this? I never heard of this before. So you can't read intelligently basic theology if you don't know who some people are. So at least you'll, you've heard the name. Maybe if you ever read it, you won't, you won't remember what I said about it, but at least it won't be completely new. Sibelius said that he himself is the Father, he himself is the Son, he himself is the Spirit. As I said, there are three names in one object. Of course, the problem with this is you end up putting the Father on the cross. I have another problem. Who's, if, if, if you've got a modalistic God, who's Jesus talking to when he prays? He's just praying to himself. So there were a number of reasons, a number of problems, and they realized that, that, that in order to be able to express what the Scriptures teach, that the Son has to be a distinct person from the Father. Oh, now how are we going to do that? Well, then they slipped into the next error, which was called adoptionism. And in adoptionism, the Son is subordinate to the Father in essence. He's not identical in essence. See, the first one you got, they're the same person, the same essence. But now they're distinct persons, but they're distinct essences. So you went with one person, one essence. Now you got two persons and two essences. Okay, just keep it that way. We've got to end up with one person and two essences. So it works like this. You have eternity past and eternity future, and in between we have time. And in strict adoptionism, God is eternal, but he sort of invests Jesus with deity at some point in his ministry. And this is pretty much what liberal theology has today. Jesus sort of becomes divine at the baptism when John the Baptist uh, baptizes him. And at that point, he's adopted because of his good life. Notice the emphasis on works. Because of his good life, because of his devotion to God, God gives him Deity, but it is a it, it's a secondary deity. He's not eternal. He's not omniscient. He's not omniscient. It, it's a it is a a secondary form of deity. 
And so he's not identical in essence to God. Can you know, if Jesus isn't fully God, can you know God by knowing Jesus? No, you can't. Because he's a creature. He's still a creature. So you can't really know God. This was adoptionism. And notice on the chart that you have Jesus. He's born a human being. Therefore, you don't need the virgin birth. He's born a human being. And he's sort of invested with deity at the baptism. Now, what happened was that they realized that was wrong. And so in the context of this, they're beginning to develop an understanding of how to articulate the Trinity, that he's one in essence and three in person. So we can compare the two. In adoptionism, also called dynamic monarchianism, dynamic, it's power, it's infused power at the baptism, you have an emphasis on the oneness, the unity of God. It denies the deity of Christ. It affirms his humanity, and the Holy Spirit just becomes this power. That's what you have in liberal theology today. You can go down here to the Congregational Church, Methodist Church, Presbyterian Church. To some degree, they have this view, especially the Unitarian Church, this view of Jesus. The modalistic view was also called Sibelianism or Patripassionism, meaning the Father suffers on the cross. If you don't have different persons, then... It's the same guy who's on the cross, so that's the Father. They emphasize the unity of God, the oneness of God, but they in modalism it affirms the deity of Christ. Christ is God, but they de- deny his humanity, and the Holy Spirit just becomes another mode of God's existence. The problem is that unity of God breaks down. It can't properly express the data of Scripture. And then you get the next guy that comes along. He was a presbyter down in North Africa by the name of Arius. And Arius has a modified adoptionism. Christ, instead of being born a human, he is eternal, but he's a creature. And Arius taught there was a time when Christ was not. He was a musician. This was a little praise and worship course they sang in the... In the uh, uh, early church, that there was a time when Christ was not. And so everybody thought that Christ was just a creature. He was created in eternity past rather than in time, but he's still just a creature. And again, you have the same problem. You can know the creature, but you don't know God. And furthermore, the, if he, all he is is a creature, he can't die on the cross for our sins because the Redeemer has to be God as well as man, has to be equal with God. So this was the uh, controversy that came up in the early church in the early part of the 4th century, around 315 uh, A.D., which is the time just after Constantine became the emperor in the Roman Empire. And he's the first Christian emperor, emperor, so-called. And there's a lot of debate as to whether he was truly a believer. You hear the story that he was converted when he, when he was involved in a battle, um, with the barbarians in, in Rome. And it's called the Battle of Milvan Bridge. And he saw allegedly later in life he said this, but, but it's been embellished a lot, that he saw a cross in the clouds. 
and heard a voice from heaven said, by this sign you'll conquer. And so he decides to be a Christian. His mother had been a Christian and been uh, witnessing to him for a while, so he becomes a Christian. But that's debatable. He was using Christian symbols long before that. I mean, he was very superstitious. He used Christian symbols before that. He used pagan symbols, and he was a sun worshiper to the end of his life. He was, above all, he was a pragmatic politician who wanted everybody to get along together. So once he became emperor, and there was this squabble going on in the church, which he did not have the intellectual uh, tools to handle about the uh, relationship of, of, of Christ, of Jesus to God, the deity of Christ, he calls all the bishops together from throughout the empire in order to have a meeting to try to resolve this, this conflict. He pays for everybody to come. And he goes to his summer palace in a town called Nicaea, which is south of Constantinople on the on the western uh, side of what, what is now Turkey. And they meet there, and they have a conference at Nicaea in 325 A.D. And you have, on the one hand, you have Arius, who says there's a time when Christ was not. He's a creature. On the other side, you have Alexander, the bishop of of, uh, of uh, uh, Alexandria in northern Egypt, and he's saying, no, he's not a creature, he's eternal. He is eternally begotten, eternally the Son of God. And then uh, his student was Athanasius. Alexander dies not long after uh, the Council of Nicaea, and Athanasius really carries the banner through the whole century. And the result at Nicaea is that they battle over this little word. Well... I can't even spell it correctly. There. Now, it's homoousios and homoousios. And you see there's just this one little I that's the difference. And homoousios means that Jesus would be of the same substance as the Father. That means fully divine. And the second word is homoousios, which would be similar substance. It's not quite the same. He's just similar. This led to a very famous statement in history when uh, uh, Gibbon, who wrote the rise and fall of the, or the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, wrote about this conference that they that they just battled over a diphthong. Uh, a diphthong is a vowel combination, and the whole battle was over an just an I. The letter iota used to be pronounced iota in in uh, Greek and so we got the, the the saying in English that well it just it's not an iota's worth of difference but there's a tremendous amount of difference whether Jesus is the same as God or whether he's the same substance of God and the result of this was what what is called the Nicene Creed that was a doctrinal statement see they were encapsulating in this statement what Scripture teaches, they're not inventing doctrine. That's the charge you'll read in the Da Vinci Code and almost every liberal that comes along, probably most of the shows you see on A&E or Discovery Channel, will say, well, at Nicaea they, they invented Christianity. I remember Shirley MacLaine in her book, Out on a Broken Limb, said they got rid of, they got rid, oh, Out on a Limb, excuse me. Uh, they said that it was, um, she claimed they got rid of reincarnation in the church. No, they didn't. I mean, this is not, they're not inventing anything. You can go back to the, what was called the, um, uh, the, the, uh, Apostles' Creed 
And there were other creedal statements that clearly affirmed uh, the deity of Christ as far back as about 140 A.D., not to mention all the passages in Scripture. So the Nicene Creed was written, We believe in one God, the Father, all-governing creator of all things, visible and invisible. See, they believe in the unity of God, one essence. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father is only begotten. And that's the terminology that entered into the church, is to explain the relationship of the second person of the Trinity to the first person of the Trinity as he's begotten, eternally begotten. Trouble is, we think of begotten as having this idea of being born, that it has a beginning. So they define it that way. Uh, they define it clearly as time goes by. Uh, as you go through the paragraph, begotten, not created. So that, that deals with areas. Begotten of the Father is only begotten. That is from the essence of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. See, they're affirming the, 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 the undiminished deity of, of, of Jesus Christ. He's begotten, not created. So begotten is a technical term to describe the fact that he's eternally the Son, eternally uh, begotten from the Father. Uh, not created of the same essence as the Father. That means he's one in essence, but he's a distinct person. So they've solved that problem through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate. See, there you see he came down. He pre-existed the virgin birth, emphasizing his, his deity. He came down and was incarnate, becoming human. He suffered on the third day and he rose and ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge both the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. Notice, that's all they say about the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's not the battle. Now, the battle will come about over the Holy Spirit in the next century or two, and they'll further clarify what they, what they mean and understand and believe about the Holy Spirit. But this is a foundation. Whenever you sit and you think about the Trinity, and whenever you sit and you think about the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ, you're doing it because of what those men did. You're able to think about it the way you think about it because of what they did and the battles that they encountered. Now, this wasn't the end of the battle. Now, next time we'll go through the rest of the century and how things developed, but this really was the beginning because within a couple of years, Alexander died, and and a couple more years after that, Constantine died, and his son came in, and his son was an Arian, and so they banished uh, Athanasius in exile, and the all of a sudden the Arians became Orthodox. And really for about the next three or 400 years, the Arians, those who were, believed like Jehovah's Witnesses today, that Jesus wasn't eternal, but he was created sometime in eternity past, dominated. Most of the missionaries who who opened up and took the gospel into France, into Germany, into Scandinavia during this period were Arians. They had a, they had a limited view of the person of Christ. But by the 6th or 7th century, Arianism is pretty much uh, out of the picture until it's resurrected by the Jehovah's Witnesses. But this is important because ultimately we're going to understand who Jesus is and that it is the hypostatic union, that it is Jesus who is a man who has to grow and mature as a human being, who has to become obedient. It is 
It is Jesus who learns. It is Jesus who goes through. He learns obedience. He's tested. And this becomes the pattern for your Christian life. If Jesus solved all his problems by just relying on his deity, then what, what example is that for us? Because we can't do that. But Jesus did it in his humanity to show us we can do it under the power of God. So this is vital for understanding our spiritual life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study these things, to come to a greater understanding of who our Lord is, of the relationship of his humanity to his deity, a greater understanding of why that is important, not just in relationship to our salvation, but in relationship to our spiritual growth, our spiritual life, and give us a greater confidence in your perfect plan that you have provided everything for us in order to grow and mature as believers. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. If you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then at that instant you're saved. You don't need to uh, do anything. You don't need to tell God about it. You don't need to uh, have some special prayer God is omniscient, and he knows when you trust Christ as your Savior. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today. Help us to think about them, to come to a greater clarity on who Jesus Christ is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.